In the early 1980s, five men were hospitalized after having symptoms of pneumocytis pneumonia. A little less than a month later, 24 other gay men were hospitalized for having similar symptoms. This began to create a concern among public health officials and the medical community. And as scientists began to invest their skills and knowledge about diseases, conservative Christians used this time to promote anti-LGBTQ rhetoric, stating that the disease was a punishment from God. This movement would be influential in associating the sickness as the gay man's disease. By 1982, the Center for Disease Control officially recognized the illness as Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, also known as AIDS. But just as the birth of AIDS studies began, so did a movement of denialism that not only caused harm among the queer community, but unfortunately, death. As we celebrate Pride Month, we revisit a time in history where the LGBTQ were the first victims of AIDS conspiracy theories. I am your social chemist Nelson, and today, we look at the AIDS-HIV denialism movement and the impact on the LGBTQ plus community. If the last two years have taught us anything, it's that it's a lot easier to deny a problem than to actually find a solution. Some good examples are gun control, climate change, systemic racism, and COVID-19. It wasn't that long ago that conspiracists were saying that COVID came from 5G and as a result, People decide to burn down cell phone towers because if it's on the internet, it must be true. Yet, this form of conspiratorial expression is not a new phenomenon. As we mentioned in previous episodes, one of the elements of a conspiracy theory is denying the official story. And so when it comes to denialism, it plays a big part in the function of conspiratorial ideologies. And so for today's episode, we're going to look at the AIDS denialism movement of the 1980s and assess its implication on the general public and the LGBTQ community. But to understand AIDS denialism, we need to first understand what AIDS and HIV is because sometimes these two are used interchangeably, but one is actually a part of the other. So according to the CDC, AKA every conspiracy theorist hated source of information, unless it's the VARS. HIV originates from Central Africa. It is believed that it was passed to humans since in those areas it is common to eat chimpanzee meat. At some point in time, probably around the 1970s, the virus was contracted to a human and that's when AIDS began to spread from human to human. On June 5th of 1981, hospitals in Los Angeles noticed a trend of pneumocytis pneumonia when five men were hospitalized for the condition. Of the five, two of these people died. At the time, it was unclear what was causing these deaths, and so many people began to speculate that, that the disease was a gay man's disease because everyone coming in with symptoms of pneumonia was gay. This led to an increase of homophobia, especially from conservative Christians, who claimed that the disease was a punishment from God. Now, oddly enough, this movement, like any anti-LGBTQ movement, did a lot more harm than good. While it is true that gay men were likely to have HIV during the 1980s, it wasn't really a direct result of them being gay. Rather, LGBTQ people were more likely to engage in substance abuse, like injecting heroin and intoxicating themselves until they were drunk, leaving them vulnerable to unprotected sex or rape. And many LGBTQ plus people were engaged in these activities because at the time being gay wasn't socially acceptable. And when society, the church, and your own family repeatedly tells you that your sexual identity is an abomination to humanity, well, that doesn't help in being felt loved and accepted. This is why heterosexual people didn't become infected until later on because they didn't need to escape their reality. 
However, in the decades to follow, heterosexual people began to get infected and the whole gay man's disease talking point became obsolete. And the reason why drug abuse is an important factor in the origins of HIV in the United States is because the disease transmitted through needle exchange among drug users, which skyrocketed the infection rate, a risk factor that continues even to this day. So what is the difference between HIV and AIDS? Well, HIV is a virus that attacks your autoimmune system. As of this recording, it currently has no cure. Now, HIV has three stages, acute HIV, chronic HIV, and AIDS. To my understanding, if a person has HIV, they can live a long fulfilling life so long as they are consistent with their treatment. But once a person reaches AIDS, the life expectancy is three years without treatment and I think it's five with it. But essentially, it's a death sentence. Now unfortunately for the LGBTQ community, in the 1980s, the urgency to develop a treatment and cure for HIV was extremely slow. One of the reasons is because since only gay people were becoming infected with HIV, that the infection could be controlled by changing a person's sexual lifestyle. Another reason was that people being infected with HIV were associated with being drug users. So in a way, it was like the people who were addicted to drugs chose to become infected. There was also a fear among medical staff members who didn't have a good understanding of HIV and AIDS and thought that if they met with an HIV infected person that they would also get infected and die via like, you know, interaction or whatnot. In 1987, the FDA approved the first antiretroviral drug to treat AIDS. The antiretroviral drug would be known as AZT, which was initially developed to treat cancer cells, but later found to be more effective in treating HIV rather than cancer. However, the high cost of the medication made it inaccessible to an already impoverished population that not only was suffering from AIDS, but poverty as well. For this reason, Congress at the time authorized a $30 million emergency fund to pay for low-cost income patients. Now, by 1987, approximately 562,000 people are living with HIV and 84,000 people are newly infected. And I bring this up because between the time HIV is first identified in 1981 and treatment is approved in 1987, approximately tens of thousands of gay men perish waiting for a treatment. And for many LGBTQ plus individuals, they had to die alone because their relationship with their partners were still hidden secrets from family members and friends. To this day, many members of the LGBTQ plus community who survived the AIDS epidemic suffer from survival guilt. It is often reported in studies that the elderly gay community feel depressed and blame themselves for how other gay people lost their lives to AIDS during the 80s and 90s. Now, as the AIDS epidemic ran through the LGBTQ+, poor people and drug users, another virus began to develop. However, this virus was not a viral one, but more of a cognitive one, and one that added more potency to an already deadly virus, the HIV-AIDS denialism movement. In 1981 in Perth, Australia, which by the way, hello to my sister if she's listening, hope you're doing good mate, a group called the Perth Group formed one of the first denialism movements about AIDS, claiming that AIDS was not caused by HIV, but rather by oxidation and that the AZT treatment cannot kill HIV, that the medication itself is toxic to all cells and may cause some cases of AIDS. Now they make a variety of claims on their website. But what is important is not what they're saying as much as who is being influenced by them. And unfortunately, sometimes people consuming conspiracy theories are presidents of vulnerable countries like South Africa. Around the 2000s, 
South Africa formed its AIDS advisory panel, with half of the members being AIDS denialists themselves. Not only that, but at the time, South Africa's president, Thabo Mbeki, also expressed doubt about HIV and AIDS, and because of these beliefs, he took an unusual approach during the epidemic in his country. Instead of opening more testing sites and treatment centers for HIV and AIDS, he actually closed them down, arguing that the best way to fight HIV is to eat vitamins, eat African potatoes, and beetroots, which rings similar to the type of supplements Joe Rogan promotes on his podcast. Talking about Joe Rogan, we'll come back to him later on in this episode. As a result of this method of controlling the AIDS epidemic in South Africa under President Mbeki, 330,000 lives were lost, and over 35,000 babies were needlessly born with HIV infections. And before we go any further, I want to take a moment to assess the foundation of the AIDS denialism, because one of the fallacies in play is the appeal to nature fallacy. And if you remember this, it's the assertion that anything that is chemical-based or not organic by default is toxic. We see this with how President Mbeki recommended his country to change their diet instead of taking effective treatment and how the PERF group states that on their website that the medication causes AIDS. Like I said earlier, this isn't the first time we've come across this conspiratorial accusation. This is the same framework that is used to talk people out of getting the vaccine by saying that vaccines causes COVID or eat organically to detoxify all the harmful chemicals from your body. Another component of the HIV AIDS denialism movement is the opposition to the scientific consensus, medical experts, and any governmental institution attempting to reduce HIV infections. For HIV conspiracy theorists, there is an attraction about being against the mainstream narrative. However, being against something because it's mainstream does not make anyone a free thinker. It simply just makes a person a contrarian. The fact that when AZT treatment was used to treat HIV-positive people, the infection rates dropped, and less people died. Yet for HIV denialists, this was an unacceptable conclusion. So what did they do? Simply deny its existence. Sometimes when talking about conspiracy theorists and science, it is often said that they hate science. But I've said in the past that the statement is too broad. When it comes to HIV denialism, there are a number of people that promote this idea, but none are more popular than Peter Duesberg. Remember the South African panel I mentioned earlier in the episode, where deniers of the actual problem they were meant to address? He was a part of it. Now, unlike your average conspiracy theorist, Peter Duesberg holds a PhD in chemistry, and because of that, many conspiracy theorists have used him as evidence that HIV does not cause AIDS. And because he's a scientist, you can't argue with that. And if you do, it's because you're a fucking sheep or a shill. However, conspiracy theorists often ignore the concept of the scientific consensus, which is an agreement among educated experts about a specific topic. From a conspiracist perspective, when Listerine says that 9 out of 10 dentists approve of the product, conspiracists are captivated by the one dentist who didn't approve of the mouthwash. And this is because from a conspiratorial mindset, they fall in for what is known as the Galileo fallacy. This originates from Galileo's famous persecution by the Roman Catholic Church for his defense of the earth not being in the center of the universe, when the commonly accepted belief was that the earth indeed centered the universe. In this fallacy, since Galileo was opposing the accepted worldview of earth's position in relation to the sun, that therefore any opposition of the scientific consensus holds the same equivalency in validity. But as stated, this is a fallacy. Let's start that. For one, the idea that the Earth was in the center of the universe was never determined using the scientific method. 
The second thing is that Galileo's fallacy's objective is not to prove anything, it's just designed to create doubt on the skepticism of the other person. Let's do a little experiment. Let's say that I make the claim that the moon isn't real, that everything that NASA said about it is a lie, that instead it's an artificial interdimensional satellite being operated by you guessed it, the Anu fucking Naki. Now assuming you're not high or intoxicated, you'll look at me with skepticism and rightfully so. Then I say, well, you're just a sheep that believes whatever the mainstream media tells you. But you know what? They also doubted Galileo. So just because you don't believe me doesn't make me wrong. And that is the Galileo fallacy. It's the attraction of being the underdog and having the odds stacked against you. But whereas in soccer, a good underdog story has a good feeling to it, when it comes to spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories, they can cost people's lives. So when people say that conspiracy theorists don't like science, it's not that they don't like science. They like scientists when they're willing to act unethically. They just don't like the scientific method exposing their bullshit. Now when I was at work, I decided to listen to the Joe Rogan podcast, the episode in where he invited Peter Duesberg and the comedian Brian Kellen. I'll leave a link in the show notes below if you're interested in that episode. In the three-way conversation, Joe Rogan attempts to understand Duesberg's position on the cause of AIDS. And interestingly, Brian, the comedian, attempts to argue about how AZT was helpful among his friends who at the time were dying of AIDS. And it's important to note that while Brian is not a medical expert, his observation among his friends who were using AZT was evidence that the treatment against HIV was effective in reducing the fatality rate among Brian's peers. However, for Duesberg, this was not evidence because according to him, HIV is not a virus that can be treated using medication. It is a disease that can only be cured by changing one's lifestyle. In the episode, Duesberg argues that the reason why people develop AIDS was because of drug abuse, more specifically, drug administered via injection, and having multiple sexual partners. However, this explanation has many flaws. Let's go through a few. As he states, AIDS is a result of drug abuse via injections. The problem with this claim is that HIV AIDS symptoms became prominent in the US around the 70s and 80s. That in mind, drug usage via needle injections goes as far back as 1902 in China and 1914 in the United States, according to the National Library of Medicine. If drug abuse is the cause of AIDS, how come between the 1900s and the 1970s, an explosion of AIDS was not reported in China and America? And regarding multiple sexual partners, well, that has always occurred throughout human history, yet at no point prior to the 1970s have explosions of HIV symptoms occurred like it did in the 1980s. It is here that we must remember that correlation is not the equivalent of causation. Now when Brian Callen asked him to explain how come his friends stopped dying after they began using AZT treatment, he never directly addresses the question, rather he would go back to his talking point that AIDS is caused by needle sharing and promiscuity. In other words, he would simply deny that such point was made, like if that somehow disproved what Brian was asking him to explain. Oddly enough, while Peter Duesberg finds himself against the scientific consensus when it comes to the cause of AIDS, he acknowledges the efficacy of vaccines and chemotherapy. And I found this interesting since many deniers of one form of treatment oftentimes deny the safety of other ones. It then made me wonder, what is his endgame if not for sharing misinformation? 
and I think Seth Kellerman can help answer this question. In the book, Pseudoscience, The Conspiracy Against Science, he writes the following. Duisberg was a brilliant scientist, but something went astray. Some say that he was angered by others getting credit he felt he deserved. Others believe he has a character flaw, a narcissism that makes him crave attention above all else. I do not hold to either of these viewpoints. A contrarian who has abandoned science, Duisberg wants to argue, he wants to debate, he wants to be right. Duisberg has been unable to produce evidence that drugs and poverty cause AIDS, so he ignores the facts, discounts the science, and digs in to defend his beliefs. End quote. So why am I doing an episode of HIV and AIDS denialism? During the pandemic, there were countless stories about patients in ICU dying because of their COVID symptoms, and when offered to get vaccinated once they recovered, several people across the country reporting saying that they would rather die than get poisoned by the vaccines. Right-wing propagandist Candace Owens, on her show a year or so ago, stated that she would also rather die than get vaccinated, because it was a matter of principle to her. Now, the statement is stupid when you think about it, but this sentiment is not new, as you can imagine. In 1992, Christine McGuire was diagnosed with HIV. At first, she helped volunteer in AIDS helping groups such as AIDS Project Los Angeles and LA Shanti and Women at Risk. But in 1994, her position on HIV took a deadly turn when she discovered Peter Duisberg, who, as we learned, stated that HIV does not cause AIDS, but that it was the treatments that were poisoning her plus her diet. As she began going down the rabbit hole, she began consuming conspiracy theories, from becoming a consumer of conspiratorial content to becoming a producer of conspiratorial ideologies. When she published her book, What If Everything You Thought You Knew About AIDS Was Wrong? She would eventually form the group Alive and Well AIDS Alternatives, a nonprofit that challenged quote-unquote common assumptions about AIDS. During this time, she encouraged pregnant women who tested positive for HIV to avoid any toxic medications. This included the effective HIV treatment, AZT, and instead use holistic remedies, illustrating once again the appeal to nature fallacy. Now, Christine McGuire had two children, but at the age of three years old, her daughter, Eliza Jane, died from HIV complications. And do you think this changed her mind about HIV? Nope. Christine would go on to state that what killed her daughter was the medications treating her pneumonia. But on December of 2008, the poster woman for the HIV denialism movement, Christine McGuire, passed away from HIV complications at the age of 52. However, even though Christine was physically dead, her voice and her ideas continued to live on. So much so that her followers refused to acknowledge that AIDS contributed to her death, that instead, it was the stress from advocating the truth and being a die-hard free thinker. And I think it's important to highlight this because Christine McGuire was not only a conspiracy theorist, but she was a conspiracy theorist with the disease she denied having. And this is dangerous for the LGBTQ plus community because conspiracy theory producers are always looking for the next customer. Recall that in my episode on the gay agenda, I mentioned that the LGBTQ plus community were less likely to seek medical intervention because one, affording health insurance is 
impossible, and two, the historical discrimination towards the queer community has been clearly documented, especially with how long it took the US government to develop a treatment for HIV. And if you can't visualize what I'm trying to say, remember in my Tuskegee experiment episode how African Americans were less likely to get vaccinated because of how people were treated by the medical establishment. If African American people are less likely to trust the medical community, what makes us think that the LGBTQ plus community will not be susceptible to the consequences of disinformation and conspiracy theories? Because let me tell you, there are plenty of gay and lesbian conspiracy theorists waiting to make a quick buck at the cost of their own community. And Emery Taylor was a victim of such greed and ignorance. A young African American gay man whose life was sadly ended by AIDS and AIDS conspiracy theories. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're listening on Spotify, click on that follow button for me. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, click on that subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. By doing so, you help expose this podcast to people who might be interested in conspiracy theories within politics. You can follow me on Facebook and on Instagram at The Social Chemist. If possible, share this podcast with your friends to have some interesting discussions about today's episode. And for more information, you can find all the references on the show notes below. So with that being said, take care and question everything with logic.